Hebrews chapter 1 part 1. The second talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on October 12, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number one. Translation. Installment one accompanies this talk. The first fifteen seconds of the teaching was not recorded. During this time Dr. Crabtree indicated he would briefly review the previous week and then start into chapter 1 of Hebrews. He begins his review by saying, Early in the history of this faith that we all share, there were many Jews who became believers in the Messiah. Many Jews who became believers in the Messiah. Early on, that was fine. They were ostracized, they were killed, they were imprisoned, they were ripped off by people who were taking advantage of them. They had no social standing, so people could victimize them and nobody would defend them. They were the social outcasts of the Jewish culture of the first century. There was not a lot of reason to become a believer in Jesus, except that it was the truth. It was the truth, and it was the most important truth, and so you embraced it for that reason. But everything else in your life didn't go so well if you were a believer in Jesus, which was fine for a while, but as it drug on, they began to grow weary. And this letter is written, I think, by Paul, is written by Paul to address the weariness that's settling in over these Jewish believers in Jesus who are being persecuted and there seems to be no relief in sight. It's a letter written to tell them to hang in there, persevere, keep the faith, keep up the fight, keep going, it's well worth it. And the whole book is designed to encourage them that it's well worth it and to explain why it's well worth it. At least that's part of, that's half of the purpose of the book. The other half of the purpose of the book is to answer some unsettled intellectual questions that these Jews apparently had, or at least some of them had. They had probably never resolved them, but coming out of their Jewish culture and their training and education as Jews, it really was kind of unfathomable that a peasant from Galilee who got crucified by the Romans and got dead could be the Messiah. Now, the resurrection was a big deal. And on the force of the resurrection, they were willing to say, okay, God raised him from the dead. He must be the Messiah. I believe that. Which was adequate for their belief as long as they wanted to believe. That allows them to kind of put their intellectual doubts and questions on the back burner unanswered. And I'll let those questions be unanswered because, well, you say he raised from the dead. Okay, I believe it, and I, and I want to follow Jesus as my Messiah. Until I don't. Until it costs me too much. And when it starts to cost me too much, now all of a sudden those unanswered, unsettled questions that they put on the back burner are now coming to the forefront in their minds. And Paul realizes those need to be answered for them. They need to recognize that his mortality, his humanity, him being a human being who got killed by the Romans is not a mark against him being the Messiah. That's in fact a mark in favor of him being the Messiah. That's exactly what we should have expected of the Messiah sent from God. And so the other half of the book is aimed at answering those questions, explaining for them why it should not be a shock that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. In the first section that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, there are basically two exhortations back to back. And by the time we've finished the introduction, Paul's basically said everything he needs to say in the book of Hebrews. He's said everything he needs to say. He's at least touched on it. They could stand alone. The introduction to Hebrews could stand alone as a complete work that would be of profit. 
But then after that, he's going to jump into the body of the argument, and in the body of the argument, we have this just incredibly masterful piece of exegesis where he goes to Psalm 110 and he takes it apart and explains to us in powerful detail the implications of Psalm 110. He didn't need that to make the exhortation that he wanted to make, but it fills it out, makes all the more powerful the argument that he's making to the Hebrews. Well, that'll be downstream that we'll look at that. Right now, we're going to concern ourselves with the introduction that basically consists of two fundamentally related but different exhortations. Both of these exhortations have both an hortatory aspect to them. Hortatory means exhortation, right? Both of them are basically encouraging you, pleading with the reader to do something. Do this. Why should I do this? For these reasons. So do A. Why? Because of B. B1, B2, B3. I mean, there may be three or four different aspects to the reasons why you should do A, but I want you to do A, and the reason for that is B. You need a defense for B, it's C. So there are basically three elements in all these exhortations. What it is that he's encouraging them to do, the basis upon which he thinks they should do it, and then an argument for why that basis is true, why he thinks that's the case. So as we look at these exhortations, we need to look at all three of those elements. The exhortation itself is going to be pretty straightforward. Where it gets tougher is when we look at the reason for it and the argument behind it. So this first exhortation we're going to look at right off the bat, basically his exhortation is, listen to Jesus, give heed to what he came and taught us, don't disregard him, don't you dare ignore the gospel message that Jesus came into the world to teach. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he's greater than any angelos out there. And we know from the Old Testament, we know from the history of Israel, that if you ignore an angelos, there's a consequence. You get punished. You pay a price. So if God would punish you for disregarding an angelos, you can bet he's going to punish you for disregarding Jesus because Jesus is more important than any angelos. And then the rest of the first chapter is a case for Paul's argument, his case for why Jesus the Son is in fact greater than any angelos. Now, one more point of review. Last week, we, I took a little bit of time to explain why I'm not saying angel, why I'm saying angelos and not angel. All of your English translations translated angel. I think that's a mistranslation. Angelos in this context is not an angel, but rather a theophany. So the kind of angelos that Paul has in view here is the angelos that came to Moses as a burning bush on Mount Sinai, as the kind of angelos that led Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is the angelos that was the Shekinah glory who hung out above the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle as they were in the wilderness. It's the kind of angelos who showed up at Abraham's house and had dinner with him and announced the birth of their son. That God has, over the course of history, has appeared at Yahweh himself, has taken on a kind of visible form and as a visible manifestation has shown up and interjected him into history, talked to people, related to people, and done things in relationship to people. And in each case, it's called an angelos. Those theophanies are God's messengers of himself to his own people. So that's how we need to take angelos here in Hebrews, because it's not about angels. What the, the expectation that some of the Jews began to have is that Jesus, if he's really going to be the, a human being who's the embodiment of Yahweh's authority and sovereignty and rule, like we think the Messiah is supposed to be, then it must be that he's going to be a theophany. Who better to be God than God, right? So surely he's going to be God in the visible form of a human being. He's not going to be a human being who is God. And Jesus has this mark against him. He was a human being. He was a human being who was God, as we will see in the opening chapter of Hebrews. But he was a human being who was God. 
he wasn't God in the visible form of a human being. And as I said last week, that's going to be a little challenging to some of us who've grown up in traditional Christian culture, because whether we know it or not, or whether we admit it or not, most of us grew up thinking of Jesus more as a theophany than as an incarnation. We didn't grow up thinking that he was a man who was God. We grew up thinking he was God who had the form of a man. And that's exactly the distinction that some of these Jews have made. And they're claiming, we can't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah because he was a man. And that just isn't going to work. He has to be a God. He can come in the form of a man. That's okay. But he has to be a God in the form of a man. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. No, you don't get it. And we're going to go to the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to go to the promises. We're going to go to the predictions. And we're going to see that a man is what was promised. That's what all along has been, should have been our expectation of the Messiah, that he would be an ordinary human being. Okay? So let's look at the first exhortation. And his first exhortation is, you must take care to listen and give heed to the gospel message that Jesus came and proclaimed. You'd be a fool not to, for there is no more important being in all of created reality than this man Jesus, and you ignore what he has to say at your peril. So remember the background. These Jewish believers have begun to abandon their belief in the gospel and abandon their belief that Jesus was the Messiah and are beginning to return to their ancestral Jewish religion. It's it's to them, he's saying, you don't want to do that. Don't abandon this belief that you have embraced that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the truth, and you will reject that at your peril. You don't want to be doing that. So it's a warning to them to not ignore the teaching of Jesus. Now, how does he put that? He starts off by saying, in past days, God spoke to us in many portions and in many ways, something like that. And what does he have in mind? What he has in mind there is, throughout the history of the Jewish people, if God wanted to say something to someone, how did he say something to his people? A prophet here, prophet there. In many ways, Daniel, God spoke to Daniel through visions and dreams. He spoke to Joseph through dreams. Some of the prophets say, the oracle of the Lord came upon me. Others say, the word of the Lord came upon me. One of the prophets says, the burden of the Lord came upon me. They seem to be describing very different revelatory experiences. The subjective experience they had was not necessarily the same kind of experience. So if if you were to ask the question, well, how does a prophet know when God is revealing something to him? I don't know. Each prophet, I think, is different. God has to teach the prophet when it is that God is revealing something to him and speaking to him. And I don't think we can assume that their subjective experience was all the same. I mean, we know that there's a difference between the interpretations of dreams in the case of Daniel and Joseph and and those things that happened to Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and other prophets. So it came in many portions and in many different ways that God would make his word known. In many portions, Isaiah didn't have the whole picture. Ezekiel didn't have the whole picture. Joseph didn't have the whole picture. Daniel didn't have the whole picture. Nobody, what we got throughout the history of the Jewish people is God giving a piece here, a piece there, here a piece, there a piece, everywhere a piece, piece of the truth, of the purposes of God. And you would need to put them together to get the whole picture. So Paul says, we got pieces of the picture through the prophets in the Old Testament. But then he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. In these last days, he's spoken to us through the son himself. And then what he's going to go on to do is to talk about how significant a figure the son is. As I put it in my notes there, you can't get more important than the son. There is no important being in all of reality shy of God himself. There is no important being in all of reality more important than the son. So God didn't just put the last pieces of the puzzle together and finish the picture with another prophet who gave us the last piece. He sent his son to fill in everything and to finally declare his purposes and his promises to mankind through the son. And so the argument that Paul's going to make here is, so I don't think you should be disregarding what he said. 
Don't ignore his teaching. Don't abandon his teaching. Don't set it aside as irrelevant. You can't possibly get more relevant than what Jesus came and taught us. If you're looking at my translation now, if you go down to the end of the first sentence, notice that I suggest that everything after that is more or less parenthetical. So everything else is parenthetical until you get to the last clause in that line. I think it would be probably about verse 3 in your normal Bible. Uh, In these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son, even supporting everything that the Son said by the divinely powerful utterance spoken by him. Okay, what are you referring to? Now, most translators, most commentators, most teachers have a completely different take on this. But I'm convinced that what he's saying is, Jesus came on the scene. So this is Jesus of Nazareth, right? The same guy who wandered around Galilee with a bunch of disciples teaching people everywhere he went. This Jesus of Nazareth, he was the one that God was using to speak to us his word in these last days, he says. But he didn't just teach. God verified and validated what it was that Jesus was teaching by backing, by showing signs of Jesus' authority. Now, how did he do that? Jesus is the man who said to the lame man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And you know what happened? He walked. He's the one who said to the blind man, see, let your eyes be opened and see, or your ears be opened and hear. And the blind man saw, and the deaf man heard. He said, Lazarus, come out of the grave, and Lazarus came out of the grave. He said to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And even when the wind and the waves obeyed him, which we'll see here in a little bit, was an incredible, incredible sign. In some ways, even more impressive than Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Because his authority was not limited to Israel. His authority was not limited to being king over a people. His authority extended to all of created reality. All he had to do to the waves and the winds is say, would you shut up? And they shut up. Now, who is doing that? Jesus makes it clear, I didn't do nothing. The miracles that I do, I don't do them. My Father does them. Why does the Father do these miracles in the life of Jesus? To credential Jesus, to validate Jesus, to vindicate his claim. I am the Messiah. I am the Son sent from God. And lest you have any question about that, see the works that I do. That is the way that Jesus puts it. If you don't believe me because I say so, then believe me because of the works that I do. The dude got up out of the tomb. The waves stopped. The wind stopped. The blind man saw. The lame man walked. The deaf man heard. Believe me because those things happened, if you don't take my word for it. But I'm telling you, I'm the Messiah, the Son sent from God. So I think that's what this sentence is saying. God, having spoken in past times in many portions and in many ways to the fathers through the prophets, has in the last of these days spoken to us through the Son, even supporting everything that the Son said by the divinely powerful utterance spoken by him, Jesus. Jesus would utter some command, and God would exercise his divine power to back up the utterance to back up the command, okay? I'll pause there for any comments or questions so far. Jack, I was just wondering how you were, you translated it obviously a lot different from, so mine says, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. I skipped over that. Oh, you skipped over that? Your translation probably has something like upholding all oh, things see. by the word of his power or something like okay. that. Okay, I didn't realize you'd skipped over. Yeah, okay. I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to the... Awesome. The I was just wondering what in the world the Greek said. <laughs> That's so different. That yeah, sorry about sense. that. No problem. And I think a, a more traditional reading of that is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity as he is, the, is the one who upholds all things in its very being and existence. If God doesn't want you to exist, you won't exist. If God does not want the universe to be there, it cannot be there. It cannot cohere as a cosmos if Jesus doesn't make that happen. And the reason is that they're bringing a whole boatload of theology 
as big, thick lenses that they're reading it through and just reading all that stuff into it. But like I said, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, not the second person of the Trinity. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And what did God do with Jesus of Nazareth? He sent him to have the last and final word on what God was up to in this world and to teach us that, to to teach us the gospel. And he didn't just come and teach. All kinds of miraculous signs were performed by his father for you and me so that we can know that this guy's not just blowing smoke. He's for real. He's actually from God. No man can do these works if God is not with him, Nicodemus told him. No man can do the works that you do if he's not from God. And that's very important. It's huge. Because anybody can claim to be the Messiah. I could claim to be the Messiah. But what good is that? I can't back it up. God is not going to take my utterance of command, peace be still, and make things peaceful and still. I'm just going to look like a fool. So the subject of the sustaining all things, is that Jesus then? or That's God. That's God. I think it's God. Who's affirming... So that word sustaining, I don't know what it is in the Greek, but that's the idea is that God is kind of upholding all the things Jesus said. And yeah, did. it's a kind of idea of, uh, the idea is kind of upholding. Upholding in what sense? He's giving evidence. He's, He's upholding it. his claim with evidence. He's, what's, what, how, do we, how do we say that? He's supporting mm-hmm. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah by performing the signs that give evidence that he's for real. So the powerful word is God's... Sorry, I'm just... There's a textual... I reconstructed the text different than I think the New American Standard is translating. The divine power is God's, and he's using his divine power to support Jesus' utterance that is spoken by Jesus. So it's Jesus who says, peace be still. It's God's power that quiets the waves and the wind. Okay. Jesus had no power to do that kind of thing. I, mean, I know that's not traditional, but take it up with Jesus. He's the one who said, <laughs> the works that I do, I'm not doing them. He's the one that said, I don't have the ability. I don't have the power. It's my Father who does them. Okay? So it kind of seems like your translation is, in some ways, if, if you contrast it to, well, I'm looking at the New International Version, you're kind of giving up or you're not giving Jesus a certain amount. You're taking away some of the power, I put that in quote, of Jesus. The divine glow. You're saying that he wasn't there from the beginning, or he didn't, he's not sustaining things. He's not the all, in some ways, I don't know if this is as powerful as God. Well, let's put it this way. Jesus is not transcendent. Okay. Only God is transcendent. Jesus is not transcendent. So any way in which our translations or commentaries or teachings from this passage assume Jesus' transcendence, I'm, I'm taking issue with those. I don't, I don't think they've got that right. So yes, I'm, I'm taking his transcendence away from him. But see, if I'm right, that's taken for granted by both Paul and the people he's writing to. That's their complaint. How can somebody who's not transcendent be the Messiah? So his argument has to start there. Yeah, he's not transcendent, but he is the Messiah. And let me show you why that makes sense. Why does it make sense that a human being would be the Son of God? Why does that make sense? And that's going to be just as shocking to them, and in some ways even more shocking to us, because from the cradle we have learned that to call Jesus the Son is to call him transcendent. But what I'm going to say here isn't even really controversial. I mean, I'm going to say some controversial stuff, but this ain't one of them. The title son is not indicating his divine aura as a transcendent being. And we're going to see evidence after evidence after evidence of that in this argument that Paul is making, where he keeps talking about the son, a human being. The human being is a son. Yes, it's almost like more nowadays we want to give that back to him. Would you respond to someone then who is argues back, you can't do that to Jesus. <laughs> you're taking, you're limiting whom, who he really is. Well, I think we should learn a lesson from the book of Hebrews. We are always inclined 
to believe in the Jesus we want to believe in, not believe in the Jesus who actually is there. That was the problem that made Paul write this to start with. I want to believe in not the Jesus, but I want to believe in the Messiah that I want to believe in. I want the Messiah to fit my template. And if Jesus doesn't fit my template, then to hell with him. I'm not going to believe in him. He's not, he's not my Messiah. Well, that's a mistake that we are all inclined to always make, is to create a template and then insist that the picture, the way I interpret the Bible, the way I think about the Bible, my theology and everything, I run it through my template and make sure it fits my template. Instead of allowing Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament, the Bible to come and teach me what I've got wrong. Show me where to correct my thinking. Show me where to make it right because I've, been, I've gone astray in the way I'm thinking of it. So I grew up with that template as well. I'm not saying this because I don't like that template and I, I want to impose my template instead of your template. I hope it's not the case that I'm teaching this because I want it to be this way. This is a hard-fought change for me where bit by bit, inch by inch, little by little, the more I studied the Bible, the more it kind of eroded the plausibility of the old picture. That old picture doesn't fit what the Bible's actually saying. So sooner or later, you have to let it go and say, well, then let me believe what the Bible is actually saying. So that's what I would say, is that if I'm not teaching what the Bible is saying, then don't listen to a word I'm saying. But if, in fact, I am explicating what Paul would say and what Jesus would say and what the other apostles are saying, then why wouldn't we believe that? As we're going to see here later in the chapter, God vindicated their authority as well. And they're the ones that passed all this stuff on to us. Why would I ignore them in favor of some modern preacher who's telling me what to believe? Believe him over Paul? Believe him over Peter? Believe him over John? That makes absolutely no sense to me. So that's the issue. Now, there's an important implication here before I forget it. It may not be relevant to a lot of you, but it's relevant to some of you, and it will potentially be relevant to all of you. And so I, wanna, I just want to comment on this briefly. If you go off to Bible college or graduate school in biblical studies or read academic commentaries at some point or hang around with people who do, sooner or later, you're going to run into this phenomenon where more and more and more, the kind of hip and groovy way to read the New Testament is the biblical author, Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, and Mark in the Gospel of Mark, and John in the Gospel of John, and for that matter, yeah, and, and Paul, they took something that Jesus taught or took something that Jesus did, and then they creatively twisted it. They creatively worked with it. They creatively used it to make a point that probably was not really the intrinsic meaning of what Jesus did or the intrinsic meaning of what Jesus said, but it's true nonetheless. And really, this has a pedigree that goes all the way back to Germany in the 1800s, the, the German theological schools in the 1800s, where they were content to say, the spirit of Christ lives on in the church. So Jesus didn't stop speaking when he died, was raised, and went to sit at the right hand of God. He didn't stop being around and teaching. The spirit of Jesus remained among his people in the church and continued to reveal, and I mean reveal, right? Continued to reveal new things and new truths to all of us through the imagination, the creativity, the intelligence, the brilliance of these anonymous first century, second century, third century believers who took what Jesus did and said and worked with it, spun it, gave it new insight and that kind of thing. I want you to recognize how foreign that way of thinking is to what Paul is saying here. Who is the one who in these last days God has used to speak? Jesus of Nazareth. Not the spirit of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who walked around Galilee and Jerusalem, and God supported, upheld, gave evidence of the truth of what he was saying with the miracles that he performed. This is not some amorphous universal, ubiquitous spirit of Jesus at work. This is the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who taught. That's the one 
whom God spoke to us through in these last days. You dig it? See what I'm saying? It was, yeah. So earlier when you were, when the question started, I was thinking, did the apostles believe that he was a theophany? And the second part of that question is, has that worldview of what, of who Christ was that has permeated to what it is today, is that when it all started, is when Paul started trying to reverse it, or was it already in place? Was your first question, did the apostles believe that? That he was a theophany. Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. How could they? They walked with him. They saw him sleep. They saw him eat. They saw him work. They saw him fish. They saw him eat fish. They saw him toil. There's no way that they could have lived as closely to him as he did and not realize he's a human being. So that's not even a question to the apostles. So I think we're dealing with second-generation believers here. Now, by second-generation, I don't necessarily mean in time, chronologically, but Jews who have been removed from the actual events of Jesus' life. They didn't even get in the picture until Jesus is out of the picture, has gone up to be with God. And so they never were eyewitnesses to him. So it's easy for them to resort just to their theology and say, well, I've got to... Now, you're saying he was a human being? Well, then that's a problem for me. And he got crucified by the Romans? That's a huge problem for me. That's not very Messiah-like, so I can't believe that. And the second part of your question was... Uh, Isn't that kind of the Christian worldview today? I mean, like the, what the media would put forward? I think so. And, I, I, and when, when I mean, it's more complicated it was... because the doctrine of the Trinity is a very complex doctrine, but... The way it boils down to the average person. I mean, I know growing up in the church, I thought Jesus was God in a man suit. I mean, I thought that's what it meant for him. When we said that he was holy man, yeah, his, his man suit was completely a man suit. <laughs> I mean, that's what he was. And so he comes up across the wind and the waves. He rips open his jacket, there's a big G blazoned on his chest, and now he acts as God to exert all of his power to perform the miracle that he performed, and then he cloaks himself again and, and is just now uh, obscured in his man suit again. I mean, that's my view growing up in the church. Now, no theologian would have sanctioned that, but that didn't stop me. So, so when did you think it got twisted? I mean, when, when did that actually... When in history? Yeah. Well, I, I think we're beginning to see the beginnings of it with the people he's writing to. They have already, and maybe even prior to this within Judaism, I don't know the answer to that question, but perhaps prior to this within Judaism, you already have expectations of the Messiah that are along the lines of, well, he's going to be a theophany. And these erstwhile Jesus believers have decided the theophany theory makes more sense to me than Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah. So I'm going to go back to the theophany theory. Can I interview you for a second? Sure. Okay. You talked about you used to believe in the traditional trinity, so that would be Jack the Younger, and here you are now, Jack the Elder. Was the Jesus of Jack the Younger any more glorious than the Jesus of Jack the Older, Elder? I think he was actually less glorious, because everything he did was a piece of cake. I mean, he's God. Why is dying on the cross a big deal when you're God? Can't you make yourself not feel pain? Can't you make yourself endure, persevere? Even if you can make sense out of God dying on the cross, which is a problem, but even if you can make sense of God dying on the cross, I mean, again, back to my childhood, I probably never vocalized it, but my thought was, and why is that a big deal? Especially because back in those days, I mean, if I was God, I would die for me. (laughs) I had an inflated uh, view of myself. Was Jesus more holy to Jack the Younger than Jack the Elder? No, no. Was Jesus more good as Jack, no. Jack the Younger? No. Was Jesus, did you think that, the, that as Jack, Jack the Younger, did you think that Jesus was more worthy of worship than Jack, than Jesus, no. than Jack the Elder? No. So if you want to compare Jack the, Jack the Younger with Jack the Elder, what is the difference now between what you thought then and what you thought now? 
the coherence of what I believe is better than what Jack the Younger believed. Jack the Younger had a lot of fragments of doctrines that had been handed him by some come from the Bible, some came from church, some came the history of Christianity, and it was one big jumbled mess. And sometimes I would, in response to a question, I would take out this piece, and then in response to a different question, I'd take out another piece. And there was no coherent picture about what is this and what's going on and how does this all work and so on. And my life has been a quest for coherence. I want to make sense out of this stuff. If it's not coherent, why do we believe it? If it's not, it, coherence is the hallmark of truth. If you can't make this stuff cohere, then it's not worthy of our belief. So Jack the Elder is more confident and smarter than Jack the Younger, I think. Did Jack the Younger need more faith to believe in Jesus? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I, it's, it's loaded on purpose because I, I remember... You know, faith as the New Testament defines faith? Yeah. No. Right. God has been drawing me to himself the whole time. Yeah, I mean, let, let me be clear. I don't think God cares if you believe in the view of Jesus and the Trinity that I have or the view of Jesus and the Trinity that the church teaches. I don't think God cares. What God cares about is the human heart. Do you want to know him or do you not want to know him? Do you want to love him or do you not want to love him? Do you want to serve him or do you not want to serve him? That's what counts. The rest of this stuff is just for the sake of God created us to be knowers. And the way we honor God with our minds is by knowing what's true and rejecting what's not true. No problem with being confused but don't take your confusion and call it truth. That's a mistake. God is going to be merciful to our confusion. All of us have gone through incredible tunnels of confusion. That's no threat to the legitimacy and the authenticity of our belief and our relationship with God and our destiny in eternal life. None of that's jeopardized. But if it's not true, it's not true. And I think part of what we're called to as disciples of Jesus is to be on a quest to know the truth, know who God is, know what he's up to, know who I am in relationship to that, and to submit to that and bow the knee to that, and learn to love God because I see what he's doing, and I see who he is, and I see how this whole thing's going down. And the more I understand, if my heart is right, the more I understand him, the more I will love him. I suppose there are people who can understand and hate him for it because their heart's already there anyway. Their hearts are already in rebellion against God. But I think anyone who's already has been reoriented toward becoming a child of God, the more we understand, the more we love. And that's the whole point, is to love and serve God. Thank you. Did that? Okay. Yeah. All right. I think I have a good understanding of by what you mean by Jesus was uh, just a man in bad. He was just as mortal. His body was just like you and me in that he was easily crucified by the Romans. Okay, let me, let me stop you. Not just his body, his person. Do, do you see the distinction I'm making? See, I grew up with a view that, sure, he had a human body, and it was hollowed out, and God was inserted. Okay, so okay. his person was just like uh, you and I in addition to his body. Right. Yeah, but for the sake of clarification, how would your view of Jesus' person just being that of a man be different from, say, the theology of, say, Unitarianism, which also views Jesus as just that of a man? Well, I'm, I'm a little over my head here. I'm not sure I know much about Unitarianism, but wasn't it the case that in classical Unitarianism, they didn't believe Jesus was anything other than just a great teacher and prophet. And I mean, he was just like me in that he was, a, he was a schmuck like me. And what I'm saying is Jesus was just like me in his humanity, but he was not just like me in his role. He was absolutely unique. I mean, that's the whole point of Hebrews 1. He was the son. Jesus is the son of God. You can't get more unique than that among human beings. You can't get more important than that in human beings, you can't get more exalted than being the son. I'm not that, and I don't think that the Unitarians, I don't think that's their, what they're thinking. I think they're thinking that he, he and Confucius were just, you know, people that some people ought to listen to. 
Yes, no, Jesus is saying that he's not just a teacher that some people ought to listen to. He's the spokesman for God, and you dare not disregard him. That's what Paul's saying. Yes, so in other words, Unitarianism and Christianity and Hebrews 1 and the rest of what God has to say are completely incompatible with each other. Right, I think so. Okay, now we're going to get a better picture of who Jesus is in these parenthetical comments that Paul makes along the way. God, having spoken in past times in many portions and in many ways to the fathers through the prophets, has in the last of these days spoken to us through his Son, the one whom he appointed heir of all things, the one with a view to whom he did in fact make the ages, the one who, being a shining forth of the glory, is indeed the stamp of his particular personal identity. Okay, basically making three claims here about the Son. What is it that we know about the Son from the prophets of old? Well, the first thing is he's the one whom God appointed heir of all things. Now, what is he getting at? We're going to look at eventually 2 Samuel 7 that Paul's going to quote here in a few verses where a promise is made to David. It's a promise to King David, but it's a promise that gets carried on to David's son and his son after him and his son after him and his son after him and is eventually going to be fulfilled by a son of David that the apostles say is Jesus. Jesus is that son. Well, what is that promise? The promise is, David, you're going to have a son. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Not being there in that context, that could be just sort of a throwaway line to us. We don't know what to do with that. That is an incredibly momentous promise that's being made at that point. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Why is that so momentous? Down in Egypt at about this time, Pharaoh is the son of, I don't know who the god was at, in Egypt at that time. It's probably past Horus. It's probably Amun Re. He's the son of Re. Pharaoh's the son of Re. The king in Babylon is the son of Marduk. Online, you can see, go and look at their reliefs with their hieroglyphic, and you'll see them, the title given to the Pharaoh, son of Re, in older times, son of Horus. That's how they thought of their human ruler. Well, what is the concept going on there? Well, what makes the most sense is that they had a concept. Notice that in ancient polytheism, you know, there's the God hanging out there up in the heavens, upstairs in the house, but he has all kinds of tokens downstairs. In the case of Re, the sun is a token of Re. You could worship the sun, and when you worship the sun, you were worshiping the god Re. If you bowed down and worshipped Pharaoh, you were bowing down and worshipping the god, Ray. So there are things in this, in this world that become just a placeholder for their god. Well, up until that point in Israel, the king, king Saul, for example, he had never been designated the son of Yahweh. He was just king of Israel, and he only got to be king by twisting God's arm anyway. But with David, once David gets enthroned, God sends his prophet Nathan to him and says, David, I'm going to establish your dynasty forever. This is an unending, everlasting, and eternal throne. And you're going to have a son. And here's what we're going to do. This is not just a king of Israel like Saul was. And we'll look at that passage in, a, in a next week or so. One of the things he says is, it's not like Saul, because I removed my chesed from Saul, but I will never remove my chesed from David. That is, when I say this is everlasting, I mean it's like everlasting. You cannot screw up bad enough that I'm going to take this away from you. If your son commits iniquity, I will chastise him with a rod of iron, but I will not remove my chesed from him. Saul I did. He got so unfaithful and unbelieving, and I just took the king, the throne right away from him. But David, I'm not going to take the throne away from you. Your descendants, I'm going to continue to keep them in place as placeholders for my intention to establish an eternal kingdom. Now, there's two ways we could understand the promise that is made to David. Either an unending dynasty, 
of son of David after son of David after son of David after son of David. Two problems with that. The sons of David were not very righteous men. They didn't even come close to embodying the rule of a righteous Yahweh. They were far from it. They weren't at all fulfilling the promise that God had made to them. And then secondly, God did remove the throne from the dynasty. Babylon comes along and there ain't no son of David sitting in the throne any longer from their Babylonian exile on. And so those two facts begin to work their way out. Even as early as David, David began to see this. It's going to take more than my sons to fulfill this prophecy. And so we're going to see Psalm 110 where David is already looking way, way into the future and recognizing that there is one unique one coming, one who is more important and more exalted even than me. There is one coming who is my Lord, who is Lord over me, who is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to me. Well, and what is that promise? God will be a father to him, and he, that one, we know him as Jesus, will be a son to God. Well, what does that mean? It means that in truth, in reality, in fact, substantively, Jesus is going to be a man who will embody God's reign. Ultimately, I'm going to argue, because we're also going to look at Psalm 8, is going to embody Yahweh's reign over the whole created order. That's why the miracle of stilling the waves and the wind was so significant. Remember what they said? Whoa, dude, even the winds and the waves obey this man. That was the most astounding thing that they had ever seen. Talk about embodying the rule of Yahweh. Only Yahweh rules over nature. So if Jesus is shown, is vindicated, as having the ability to speak a word and nature obeys him, then he's the embodiment of Yahweh's rule over the whole created order, over all of creation. That's the concept of the Son. The concept of the Son is a human being that God has created and brought into history and planted their smack dab in the human history, but he's created this human being to be unique because this human being is going to be God, the embodiment of God's rule. So that's what he means by the one whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the one, or the Son is the one, whom God has appointed to inherit. By inherit all things, he means the rule and the reign, the authority over all things. He possesses all things. All things are given to him to be subject to his will. That's the Son. You can't get more important than that. Then the second thing he says, the one with a view to whom he did, in fact, make the ages. Now, your, your other English translations are going to have make the world, right? Translates it world. Weird translation. I mean, if there's any evidence that somebody is using their theological lenses to translate the Bible, it's that one. The word is literally ion. It's age. We're not talking about rocks and trees and boulders and volcanoes and islands and stuff like that, stars and moon. It's not that that he created. It's dia Jesus, dia this son, God created history, the ages, age after age after age, and what transpires in that age, and life in that age, everything down through history has been created dia the son, who we know as Jesus, dia Jesus. So what does that mean? Did Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who walked around in Galilee teaching people, was he the agent who created history? No. He's the raison d'etre of history. He's the omega point of history. He's the telos of history. He is what history is all about. In the final analysis, why does anything exist at all? To give Jesus something to own, to give Jesus something that belongs to him because he's the prima donna, he's the main focus, he's the main character, he's the protagonist of the meta-narrative of all of history. You can't get more important than Jesus. Everything that exists, exists for him, was brought into being for him, is governed by God for him to, to end up being his inheritance. And then 
The third point he makes is he's the one, the son is the one who, being a shining forth of the glory, I'll come back to that, is indeed the stamp of his particular personal identity. This is the most explicit statement, if I'm understanding it rightly, is the most explicit statement of the deity of Jesus of anywhere in the New Testament. In Greek, he's the character of his hypostasis. And that takes some judgment about what does that mean, because that, that's not an easy one. Character is not so hard. If I take a rubber stamp and I dip it in ink and stamp my, my page with it, the ink stain on the paper is the character of my rubber stamp, the image left when something has been stamped and an image or an impression has been made. Jesus is the character of the hypostasis of God. So... I think it's exactly the same thing that Paul has in mind in Colossians when he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. God you don't know. God is transcendent. God is inherently in and of himself unknowable. How can we know him? He's stamped himself onto this human being, Jesus. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. By knowing Jesus, you are getting to know God. In the upper room, remember, Jesus says to the disciples, If you know me, you have known the Father. Why? I think because Jesus is very well aware that he is the character of God himself, the very stamp of God in the form of a human being. Now the question is, what does that word hypostasis mean? And we can spend more or less time on this depending upon how much you want to, but my conclusion, my sense of it is that in Aristotle, the hypostasis is something is the particular individual thing that something is, is its hypostasis. So I think the stamp of the hypostasis here is the image left behind when God has taken his own particular individuality as the being of the transcendent God and has stamped that onto this human being, Jesus. So you and I are in the image of God, right? But we are not the caricature of God's hypostasis. I'm not Yahweh in any sense at all. I'm just person-like in that I reflect the personhood of God's person. That's the sense in which I am in the image of God. Jesus is that, certainly as a human being, but he's way more than that. He's actually the image of the individual person that God is, that Yahweh is. As I've said before, he's the embodiment of the actual person of God, of Yahweh. You see, the point that he's making, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And lest we forget who the son is, he's the one that God appointed to be the heir of all things. He's the one through whom all, the, all of history is being governed, or for whom, in view of whom, all of history is being governed. He's the very stamp of God's own being, God's own identity. And then this phrase that he prefaces that with, the one who being a shining forth of the glory. I think what he's saying here, I think this is an allusion to the Exodus account, the time in the wilderness. John does the same thing in the opening of John. If you remember the opening chapter of John, he he talks of Jesus as coming and tenting down among us tabernacling among us. He came down and pitched his tent with us and is living in a tent right alongside of us. And he's talking about Jesus. John is talking about Jesus there. Well, that's exactly what God did in the wilderness with Israel. Every Israelite family had their tent, and God instructed them, build me a tent. So they build him a tent, and his tent was right there among them. And God made it clear that he was with them because the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, when it wasn't leading them, went home to his tent and hovered right above the the tent, was above the tabernacle. Why? Because he's camping out with, with all of them. Well, John is alluding to that in the first chapter of John, speaking of Jesus as tabernacling among them. I think the same thing is true here. He being a shining forth of the glory The glory, I think, that he has in mind there is the visible manifestation of the presence of God, what the rabbis called the Shekinah, the the Shekinah glory. 
Well, we know from reading the Old Testament, there came a time, help me, David, was in the time of Samuel, that the Shekinah left. Is that right? There's, in the history of Israel, there's a time where the Shekinah glory departed. And I don't know what Jewish tradition says. I don't know about the second temple. I'm assuming it never came back. God just wasn't signaling his visibly his presence in the temple ever again after that. But what's the counterpart of that? When he sent Jesus to be among them, the glory had returned. The Shekinah glory, not in the form of a pillar of cloud, not in the form of a pillar of fire, but nonetheless, the glory of God's presence had now returned to his people, Israel, in the form of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. An astounding claim. If Jesus is present with you, Yahweh is present with you. He's right here in your midst, living in a tent right alongside of you. He calls it the shining forth of the glory. That's how That Greek word would be used of the dawn. You know, as, as you're looking at the dawn and you have that pre-glow in the dawn and then all of a sudden the rays of the sun come piercing through the clouds and that's what this word is talking about. The piercing through of the rays of the gloriously bright sun. Well, the divine glory, the Shekinah glory, has broken through the darkness of God's absence when Jesus comes. With him, we have the breaking forth of the radiance of his glory back to Israel. Paul's saying that's who the sun is. I was just thinking about how to say back to you what you were saying about the difference, like Jesus being the character, uh-huh. is the difference between a human being is an image of God. So I'm a person, but Jesus is the person. Exactly, exactly. The very person of Yahweh himself. Yeah. I'm feeling a little confused because I'm trying to picture this in my mind. You say Jesus is not God in a man suit. But did Jesus have his own personhood? Yes. And so he had two persons? Yes. Two things going on there? Which notices what the formulation of the Trinity is trying to deal with. How Mm -hmm. can you have two persons that are one? Okay. So that makes more sense to me, because we didn't talk about the fact that Jesus, aside from being having the personhood of God, also had the personhood of this man, Jesus. Yeah, I should have said this last week, but recognize one of the significant differences between a theophany and what Jesus actually was. When the burning bush talks to Moses, notice how he introduces himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. Jesus never does that. Now, it would probably be some people would argue with me, but by misinterpreting some passage, you could make him say that. But he, he never says that. He always talks about God in the third person, not in the first person. He always talks about him in the third person. So notice his own self-consciousness is not, I am God. His self-consciousness is, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, I'm God. Do you you see? Uh And therefore, when we think of the struggle or even the temptations that Jesus went through, is it because of those two different personhoods? Yeah. So that makes us able to more relate to Jesus than... Because if we see him as only having that personhood of God, then, like you said, it's a no-brainer. And, you know, he's just... Mm-hmm. But to be able to say he had the personhood of Jesus, a man, is different because his yeah. thoughts... Oh, his... exactly. Yeah, exactly okay. right. And, and that's one of the things that's so helpful in having this other view of Jesus is all of a sudden he becomes an incredibly wonderful model for us. The temptations in the wilderness... First time I read those, I thought, a dueling match between God and Satan, God won. Woo! Surprise there. <laughs> no, it's not a dueling match between God and Satan. It's a human being caught in an existential struggle between the truth taught to him by God with his promises and these alluring temptations by the tempter. That's me. That's you. We're exactly there in our lives. We know that existential struggle in our own experience. That's what Jesus was going through. No wonder in the Garden of Gethsemane, the same thing, that existential struggle. No wonder, Luke says, God sent angels to comfort him at the end of that thing. The existential crisis to end all existential crises. So somehow is this related to his inability to sin? I mean, because as a human, fully 
as a man, wouldn't he have been able to sin? Yes, but yet, absolutely. But yet, Tem- it's the other side of his personhood that caused him not to sin. The mm, God... No. No. No, now you're thinking... Okay, Mansu. 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 Yeah. No, it's not the other side of his personhood. It's the sovereign author of all of reality is creating this man, Jesus, to be sinless. He's creating every choice he makes, and he creates the choices that he makes. Could he have sinned at any one of those junctures? Absolutely. He's human. Absolutely could have sinned. But ain't going to do it because the author of all of reality has a different story in mind for him than he does for me. Does that make So you and I have talked about this before. And is it more succinct to say clearly anything that God does or makes is less than God? Yes, yes. I think so. And so God creates this reality, that this, this bubble of creation, the reality we live in, but it's smaller than him. And so when, when he appears, quote-unquote, as a burning bush, uh, eventually Moses had to figure, well, that was not all of God. Right. I mean, clearly it was his intention and his will and his command and his expression of, of him, but it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. So everything that can be of God, that can be put in this reality, resided in Jesus. And what made him, his values, his, his perspective on life, his, his patience, his love, his anger, those are God's qualities that can be made manifest in a human being. Exactly. And when it comes to his struggle with fear, doubt, quitting, sinning. It is in fact the character of God that he has put in him that overrides the mere character of manhood that would have him quit. Yeah, well, well said. So, so even within Jesus, there's this battle of his quote-unquote mortality and his, but I have God's heart, I have God's value. I love these people the same way he does. Mm-hmm. He's made me that way. Mm-hmm. And, and there really was a horrible struggle in the garden mm-hmm. i mean i mean sort of like clocks stopped you know planets quit moving all the angels leaned forward over the rail holding their breath and god won out yeah because that's the kind of person he is well said okay yeah. okay i gotta let you go <laughs> <laughs>